words are little things with great power. Uh, Words are more than just some scribbles on a page or coordinated grunts and sound effects that come out of our mouths. Words are little things, but they have great power. Because after all, we serve a God who speaks powerful words. It doesn't take us very long in the Bible to find out that words have the power of life. Genesis chapter one, God speaks into the nothingness and he makes something out of it. Now, God could have just followed a set of written instructions or he could have conducted everything like an orchestra or he could have thrown some ingredients into a bowl, mixed it together and baked it all. But no, what did he do? He spoke life and light into the death and the darkness. Words have the power of life. But it also doesn't take us very long in the Bible to see the words have the power of death. Genesis chapter three, the serpent whispers to Eve in the garden. Now, did God really say that? Oh, go ahead, take a bite. He didn't really mean it. You can be like him if you do. And so as the snake whispers the deception into Eve's ear, the scent of death comes rolling off of his forked tongue and Eve takes a bite of the forbidden fruit and the poison goes straight to her heart and it bleeds out to infect all of God's creation. Words have the power of life, but words also have the power of death. Words are little things with great power. Now, thankfully, that's not the end of the story. God's not done speaking his words of life. In fact, the whole Bible is the story of God speaking his words of life to his beloved creation to call them back to himself. And because God communicates, we communicate. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. We're made to communicate, to relate to each other. And yet, I bet if you asked your spouse this morning, they would remind you that you are not a perfect communicator. And so today, we're going to take a look at the way God communicates with us and figure out how we are called to communicate and relate to one another, specifically in marriage, but also more generally in any kind of healthy relationship that all of us are in. So we're going to take a look at the two main aspects of communication, listening and speaking. So if we're going to communicate to others like God does to us in a godly way, first of all, that means listen deeply. Listen deeply. I heard about a husband who read a survey to his wife. He said, hey, says here that women use 30,000 words a day compared to a man's 15,000. And the wife just said, well, that's because I have to repeat myself to you. (laughs) He said, what'd you say? (laughs) So if I asked your spouse or your best friend today, would they tell me that you are a great listener? I hope so. But I know that I'm not a great listener because listening is hard. It's a whole lot easier to talk than it is to listen. And Jesus knew that listening was hard. He often said to the crowds who would follow him, he said, whoever has ears, let them hear. And ultimately, if we are called to treat each other in the same way that God treats us, that means we're supposed to be good listeners because God is a good listener to us. First John chapter five says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Tell me, do people have that confidence in approaching you, knowing that you will hear them? So if we're going to become that kind of deep listener like God is, I think that requires three things. First, I think it requires focus. Now, focusing is hard, isn't it? Uh, We are a distracted people. There's constantly things vying for our attention. We're constantly being interrupted. Uh, We're we're in a hurry. You know when you're you're, you're talking to somebody or somebody's talking to you and you nod as they talk, basically saying, "Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep, yep, I get it, keep going, move on, right? Some of you are doing that thing to me right now, nodding your heads, stop it. (laughs) Listen. 
focus. Slow down. We're called to be like Jesus. And Jesus was interruptible. He was not distracted. He was not in a hurry. He had time to listen to the messy little children and to the bleeding woman who tugged at the hem of his robe and to the disciples who interrupted and had questions. He listened. And sometimes in marriage, we aren't too good at focusing on each other. Oh, sure, we were good at it when we were dating. Uh, My wife, Rebecca, and I, we dated long distance. She lived in Oklahoma. I lived in Missouri while we were dating. And so we talked on the phone a lot. And as a sign of my commitment, I bought a Bluetooth headset. And we talked on the phone for hours and hours and hours. And I hate talking on the phone. But it was worth it because I wanted to get to know this girl. I focused on her. And yet, I've learned, probably like you have, that in marriage, sometimes it's all too easy to let life get crowded and miss out on that eye contact time with your spouse. God actually hardwired this focus principle into his law for the Jewish people. Deuteronomy chapter 24 says, if a man is recently married, he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year, he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. In other words, God says, put everything else aside and focus on your spouse. I remember before I got married, my dad said to me, now son, never stop being a student of your spouse. And I remember thinking as he was saying that, yeah, dad, I get it, that makes sense, but you don't understand. I already know everything there is to know about Rebecca. (laughs) And yet I've learned since being married that if I put everything aside, if I just focus, if I just watch, if I just listen, I learn more and more about her all the time. So focus, pay attention. Have you noticed that attention is something so valuable we pay it? How do we pay attention? Well, turn your body towards your spouse, uncross your arms, lean in, grab their hand, look them in the eye, slow down, put down the phone, send the kids into the other room, turn off the radio and the TV, don't look at your watch, focus. Next, I think deep listening requires empathy. Empathy, and again, just like everything else in our Christian life, this comes back to Jesus. Scripture describes Jesus as our sympathetic high priest. He understands everything that you are going through because he's been here. He's walked in our shoes, and so when he listens to us, he listens with empathy. And we are commanded to do the same thing. Romans chapter 12, verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and mourn with those who mourn. Our job as we are listening is to try to understand what the other person's going through, to try to empathize, to try to feel what they are feeling. And then specifically in marriage, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives, catch this, he says, live with your wives in an understanding way. And that means empathy. So that means, husbands, when you come home from a long day at work and you've been up before dawn, you've been working like a dog, dealing with difficult people, meeting all kinds of deadlines, and you are just dead on your feet, you walk in and you are exhausted and you open the door to find a wife who's also exhausted because she's also been up since the crack of dawn. She had to get all the kids up, make sure they were dressed and fed and face a never-ending list of questions and chores and dishes and laundry. She's also dead on her feet and so you two meet each other and you're both thinking, I need a break. And let me tell you what that is. That is fodder for a five-star knockdown, drag-out marital fight. That's going to be some good stuff. So we can respond to this situation in two ways. One, you can choose to focus on yourself and think, man, they have no idea what I have been through today. And there'll probably be some fireworks. <laughs> or you can take option number two, and that would be to empathize. 
and just say, man, honey, I bet you're exhausted. Let me make dinner tonight. Or let me watch the kids for a little while so you can get some time to yourself. Empathize. One line that Rebecca and I found in a marriage book that's been helpful for us is to assume that your spouse has a harder road to walk than you do. Just assume that their life is more complicated and difficult than yours is. Because when we're stuck assuming, well, they have no idea what I am dealing with right now. My life is so complicated. Then we can't empathize with them and we all end up pulling, pulling apart. But if instead we can just assume that the other person has it harder than we do, it's actually not that hard to empathize with each other. So listen with focus. Listen with empathy. And thirdly, listen for clarity. For clarity. Uh, did you hear about the fellow who asked his wife what she wanted for her birthday? She said, oh, I'd love to be six again. And so on the morning of her birthday, he got her up bright and early and off they went to the local amusement park. And what a day it was. They rode every roller coaster. They rode the things, the things that spin and the things that twirl and the things that drop. I mean, they rode it all. And he bought her ice cream and a snow cone and a funnel cake and cotton candy. And five hours later, they staggered out of that amusement park and she was almost sick from all the junk she had eaten. But her husband was not done yet. He took her through the McDonald's drive-thru and got her a Happy Meal and a Coke. And then they went to the movie theater and he got her uh, popcorn and m and another big giant Coke. And so by the time they come staggering out of the movie theater, she's just about green. She's sick from all the junk they've eaten. And they get home and she's exhausted and she just collapses on the bed. And then he crawls up next to her, says, honey, how was it being six again today? And then it hits her what this whole day has been about. She says, you knucklehead, I meant my dress size. <laughs> <laughs> We need to listen for clarity. <laughs> listen to understand accurately what the other person is communicating instead of just assuming that we know what they're talking about and moving on ahead. Proverbs 18.2 says, Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. Does that describe anybody else like it describes me? Then later on in Proverbs 18, verse 13, it says, To answer before listening, that is folly. And shame. Anybody else guilty of that? Fast forwarding through the listening parts, so you can get to the talking part. James 1.19 says, everyone should be quick to listen. Do you know what comes next? Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Then later on in chapter one, James says in verse 26, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Wow, those are strong words. God must care a lot about how we use our words. And his plan is for us to listen well for clarity before we respond, before we speak. Now, my wife and I are not good at this, naturally. Rebecca and I are both interrupters by nature, so that can make things complicated sometimes as we're having a discussion. So one thing that we've done in the past from time to time is to have a listening object or a talking object. And so whoever's holding the talking object gets to talk, and the other person's not allowed to interrupt. And then they get the talking object, and then I'm not allowed to interrupt. And we take turns so that we don't cut each other off. Well, one time, a long time ago, we were having a rather intense discussion, and I don't remember what it was about, uh, but we kept interrupting each other, and we finally were just so fed up with it that we looked around for a talking object to have, so we quit cutting each other off, and I just grabbed the nearest thing to me. I just grabbed my pocket knife out of my pocket and gave it to Rebecca. <laughs> now, looking back, giving my wife a knife in the middle of a fight was not the best decision I've ever made, so we don't do that anymore. <laughs> Point is this. Do whatever it takes to listen for clarity. 
do whatever it takes to stop interrupting each other, to listen to the other person all the way through. If you have to ask clarifying questions, do it. So did you mean this, or am I understanding you correctly when you say, listen for clarity, focus, empathy, clarity. We are called to listen deeply as God does to us. And secondly, as followers of God, we are called to speak life, to speak, to communicate, to reveal ourselves, because that's what God has done to us. If God had not chosen to reveal himself to us, to speak, we could know nothing of who he is. We can't discover him on his own without his divine revelation, and so he reveals himself to us through creation and through his people and through his spirit and through his word. He reveals himself to us so that we can know him, and that's what we're called to do to each other, to reveal ourselves so that we can be known to speak. But many of us aren't too good at that. In fact, when I told Rebecca initially that I was going to be preaching on marital communication, she laughed out loud. <laughs> I'm not making that up. So wives, uh, any of you guys ever have uh, trouble getting your hubby to communicate his deep feelings and his emotions? Yeah? It's no big secret that husbands and wives tend to communicate differently. Harvard University one time did a study where they wired up a playground with microphones to record the sounds that little kids made while they played. And so they found, after listening to all these, the recordings, that 100% of the sounds that little girls made while they were playing were words. They were engaging in conversation. Whereas only 63% of the sounds that little boys made were words. The other 37% was just unintelligible noise. <laughs> we communicate differently, don't we? And yet we're called to meet on each other's level, to reveal ourselves, to speak life, to speak openly so that we can be known. Your words are powerful. Words are little things with great power. Words start wars and words end marriages and words split churches and words bring healing to broken hearts. Your words are little things with great power. Proverbs eighteen twenty one says, the tongue has the power of life and death. The tongue has the power of life and death. And people say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Baloney. Sticks and stones cause wounds that heal, but some hurts from words never will. We've all been there, haven't we? And once something is said, you can't take it back. Words are like a tattoo on your heart, for better or worse. So if your words are powerful and permanent, you have two choices. You can speak words of life, you can speak words of death. What are words of death? Psalm 140 verse three says that evil people make their tongues as sharp as serpents. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Sure sounds like the devil, doesn't it? Words of death. You may not intend your words to hurt, to bring death, to bring harm, but the devil can use them, and they do when you snap at your kids or you complain to a friend or you brag to a coworker, or you hold a bitter grudge or you spread a rumor at church or you make a judgmental comment to your spouse or you're harsh with your parents or you cuss under your breath or you tell a little white lie to get yourself out of a pickle or you're immediately defensive or you blame somebody else as soon as you're confronted about anything or you come into a room and you just start complaining about something because it's always something or everywhere you go there's always relational conflict and drama that just seems to happen when you're around. Words of death. And all of you remember words of death that have been spoken to you in the past. We've all had that. 
We've all had those words that, that cut deep, that cut a little slice on our self-image. And little by little, those sharp words just cause you to bleed out from a thousand little paper cuts. Words of death. So I wanna challenge you this week. For one whole week, seven whole days, try to not say anything negative about another person or to another person. If you can't go seven days without saying anything negative about or to another person, then you are addicted to negativity. And it's time to eliminate negativity and words of death from our speech. And let's replace them with words of life. So what are words of life? Proverbs 10, 11 says, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. And Proverbs 12, 18 says, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So do your words bring healing? Are you speaking life to your spouse, to the people in your circle every day? It's like Steve said the other day. Uh, Somebody can have a great and wonderful upbringing, but if they marry somebody who tears them down, their life will fall apart. And vice versa, somebody can have a horrible upbringing, And if they marry somebody who builds them up, they'll be okay. And I'm grateful because I'm married to somebody who speaks life to me. And the notes that Rebecca writes me, I keep those. And I have some of them up on the wall in my office. And when I see them, even though they were written a long time ago, those are wind in my sails. So write somebody a note this week. Encourage them. Do it in your own handwriting, something they can keep and look back on. Will you choose to to compliment somebody and to be gracious and be thankful instead of complain? Will you choose to let your, fa- your speech be full of grace and gentleness even when your spouse forgets to take out the trash yet again instead of nagging? <laughs> Will you choose to compliment your spouse in public where other people can hear it, where they can hear it? Will you say, please and thank you? Will you say, I love you? Will you say, I'm sorry, I was wrong? Will you say, I forgive you? Will you pray for your spouse? Will you read scripture over them? When somebody snaps at you or mistreats you, will you love your enemies and bless them and pray for those who do wrong to you just like Jesus commanded us to, just like Jesus himself did? You remember what he said about the people who were nailing him on the cross, right? Father, forgive them. Wow. Ephesians chapter four is a great chapter in the Bible and Paul talks about how we're called to use our words as Christians. I'd encourage you to go read Ephesians four this week. But towards the end of the chapter in verse 29, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, words of death, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, words of life, that it may give grace to those who hear. I love that. So are your words giving grace to those who hear? Choose to speak life this week. There's a true story about a little girl named Mary Ann. Mary Ann was born with a cleft palate a long time ago before reparative surgery is available as it is today. And she was also deaf in one ear. So as you can imagine at school, she was teased mercilessly by her classmates because she couldn't drink out of the water fountain and she couldn't blow up a balloon and she looked funny. Oh, Mary Ann, what happened to your lip? They would say. I cut it on a piece of glass. She would lie. And one of the worst parts of school was the annual hearing test. The teacher would call each child to her desk and the child would cover first one ear and then the other. And the teacher would whisper something to the child, something like, 
the sky is blue, or you have new shoes. And if the teacher's phrase was heard and then repeated, then the child passed the test. And Marianne hated that test because you remember she was deaf in one ear. Well, one year, Marianne was in the class of Miss Leonard, one of the most beloved teachers in the whole school. Every student, including Marianne, wanted to be noticed by her, wanted to be her pet. And then came the day of the dreaded hearing test. And when her turn came, Marianne was called to go up there to the teacher's desk. And as Marianne cupped her hand over her good ear, Miss Leonard leaned forward to whisper. I waited for those words, Marianne later wrote, which God must have put into her mouth. Those seven little words that changed my life. Miss Leonard did not say, the sky is blue or you have new shoes. No, Miss Leonard carefully leaned over to get as close as she could get and whispered, I wish you were my little girl. Words of life. Will you speak them this week? Do your words bring life and grace to the people who hear them? Or do they bring negativity and death? And I hope, if you're like me, that you don't want your words to bring death. We want our words to bring life and grace, and yet our tongue is still really hard to control. And this issue runs a lot deeper than just try harder to say nice things, or I'm going to work real hard to have a better attitude. No, it's a heart issue. Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if we really do have pure hearts, then those are incompatible with impure speech. And yet if we still struggle with speaking words of death, that means that some of the serpent's poison is still deep in our hearts. So we've got to have new hearts. We need somebody to fix our hearts. We need somebody to make us new. So how does God do that? Well, how did God make everything in the very beginning? He spoke Words of life and light into the death and the darkness, right? And that's how God is remaking everything too. He speaks his word. He speaks through the word, Jesus. One of the names in scripture for Jesus is the word. John writes about Jesus in John chapter one when he says, in the beginning was the word, Jesus. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So if we want our words to be full of grace and truth, then we must be full of the one who is grace and truth because God is yet again speaking life and light into the death and the darkness through his word, Jesus. And Jesus comes and he speaks his words of life. Silence! And the storm that was raging is quiet and still. And he speaks his words of life. Get up and walk. And the lame man's legs find their strength and he dances away with joy. Jesus speaks his words of life. Lazarus, come out. 
and the grave is emptied and the dead man lives and Jesus speaks those words of life to us today and Jesus says of his own words in John chapter six, he says, the words I say to you are full of the spirit and life. And our only response is like the apostle Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so, Jesus, we ask you to fill us with your word so deeply that it bubbles up from us and we can't help but overflow with your words of life. We ask you to hide your word so deeply in our hearts that we might not sin against you. We ask you to fill us with your spirit, to breathe your breath of life, to fill us with your living water, to make our hearts new, to rid us of the death and the darkness and the poison of the serpent. We want to speak life as you have spoken life to us. So send us now, Lord. Send us to speak your words to a world that needs to hear them and keep making us new. We love you, Jesus. Amen.